This episode of With Love and Justice for All is brought to you by Bliss Books and Wine. Bliss Books and Wine is an independent black-owned bookstore for wine enthusiasts and book lovers. Listed as one of the black-owned bookstores in America that amplify the best in literature by OprahDaily.com, Bliss Books and Wine is your go-to for all your favorite titles, including ebooks and audiobooks. And when we buy from black-owned businesses, we are helping to create a world of racial equity. When ordering online, use the code 846BOOK for a 10% discount. That's 846-B-O-O-K for a 10% discount at blissbooksandwine.com. In order to advance racial equity, there is work for white people and people of color to do together and separately. The Project Sanctus Affinity Groups provide safe spaces for people to work within their own racial and ethnic groups. Join us every first and third Wednesday of the month at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Zoom for brave, vulnerable conversations and for building culture through engaging embodied practices. For more details and registration, visit projectsanctus.com. Exploring the healing and culture-building practices of embodied anti-racism. This is With Love and Justice for All with Reverend Ogan Holder and Reverend Kelly Isola. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 44. That's 4-4 of With Love and Justice for All. I'm Reverend Ogan Holder here with my partner in crime and consciousness, Reverend Kelly. Good to see you, Kelly. And today we have a special guest with us. It's Friday. We usually do like our headlines recap of the week, but we have a special uh, guest today with us. Uh, this is Nell Geyser. Hi, Nell. Hey. I will, I will uh, tell you a little bit more about her, and uh, but it's it's very fortuitous. She is here. Uh, she, we're going to be talking unions. Remember, um, a couple episodes ago, we were talking, uh, I think it was last week on Labor Day, we were talking about the importance of unions in the labor movement, how they're having a, they're having a resurgence in a moment right now. And if you hadn't been paying attention, like railroad, railroads almost ground to a halt this weekend uh, because of that. And the strike was averted. It was a whole thing. So we're going to get into the importance of uh, unions and the labor movement um, and the obstacles they face and what we can do perhaps to help that out. But before we do that, we just want to remind you who we are and what we do, just in case this is the first time you're listening to us um, here on this podcast. We and if have... it is, well, and I gotta say, if it is your first time, where have you been? Hey, no, 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 we not. <laughs> there, there is no slander to new listeners. We okay. welcome, welcome new listeners. We, Yay! We, we are we are creating a welcoming welcoming atmosphere here. We welcome new listeners. Uh, if you are new, you got a whole fun back catalog of episodes. You got four to three episodes to catch up on. Uh, but here we have conversations around embodied anti-racism, around dismantling oppression, fostering liberation, um, with a special special bent towards spiritual communities and spiritual seekers. 
As always, you can join in the conversation live as we stream this on Facebook. Um, we tend to stream this, tend to, underline the tend to. The tend to is doing a lot of heavy lifting. We tend to do this live Tuesdays and Fridays uh, at 3 p.m. Eastern. <laughs> uh, right now, we're not doing that at 3, but, you know, generally, uh, we'll, we'll let you know if you make any changes. And you can post in the comments there or anytime. Um, our handle is get our holy on or just, you know, search for Project Sanctus. Um, we have a phone number if you ever want to leave a message. It's 413-GET-HOLY. That's 413-438-4659 if you don't have letters on your phone. And a few announcements, as always, um, please join our affinity groups. Our affinity groups is uh, where we have some real deep, vulnerable conversations in a safe space around anti-racism. We have memory first and third Wednesdays of the month from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern um is there one coming up next week no there's not what is today's date I don't yes know. there is the 21st next wednesday that's the third that's the third wednesday so it's the affinity group where that's there's right. a group for for bodies of culture and a group for white bodies there you go yeah we had a we had an odd start date for this month that's why it's throwing me off a little bit anyways yeah. uh so affinity groups uh depending on when you're listening to this so that would be uh wednesday the 21st that kelly said um we also have a couple of book studies book groups coming up um our fiction book group um we're doing the vanishing half that's september the 22nd that's next thursday just absolutely brilliant novel um so even if you read it this time around or you read it a couple years ago when it came out uh you can jump in on the discussion if you're a quick reader and you want to grab the book and read it read it in a week uh you might be able to do it i don't i don't know it's it's a it's it's a hefty it's a hefty novel but uh, as much as you can and if you buy uh, your books from bliss books and wine as you heard at the top of the episode um use the code 846 book is that right no yes. 846 book yes that's the code to get 10 percent off that's blissbooksandwine.com um and also um kelly and i will be facilitating um a workshop at the unity eastern region conference um october 3rd through 6th so you can visit UnityEasternRegion.com, I think, or .org is the website, um, and we'll be talking about how to uh, build a um, um, conscious anti-racism community. Uh, be looking at the past, the present, and the future. It's gonna be good stuff. Uh, that's what we got going on, and Kelly and I are cooking up some other events and workshops for the fall. So keep your calendars open. Don't plan anything until you hear from no. us. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Don't plan anything. That's not too bold a statement. Uh, Let me tell you, let me tell you about our guest today. She's been waiting patiently. Nell is the director of research for the Communications Workers of America, a labor union representing workers in telecommunications, media, technology, public service, airlines, manufacturing, and other sectors. Nell and the research department support CWA campaigns across organizing, bargaining and policy, developing evidence and tools for workers to challenge corporate power and advance democracy. Uh, she and I have had she and I have had great conversations about burning the patriarchy and capitalism. So so this should, this should be good. Um, she's worked as a research and campaigner in the labor movement since 2006 um, and supporting organizations, organizing victories in retail and distribution, among other sectors. 
Uh, before working for unions, she was a radio journalist, student activist, and she is currently, I think, an active member of the Metro DC Democratic Socialists of America, the Fun MPD Working Group, and chairs the DSA International Committee's Labor Subcommittee. You do a lot of stuff, lady. Yeah. Too much. I think we need to go back and unpack a few of those things for the listeners. <laughs> we definitely will. Did you say you do too much? Is that what you said? Perhaps. <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, well, welcome to the show. We are so glad that you are here with us. And uh, before we jump into the nitty gritty of things, let's 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 do a little check in with you. And um, how did you even get into this work in the first place? This uh, um, and exactly what what is a what is a labor researcher? Um, tell us a little bit what the job specifically is and how you got into it. Sure, absolutely. Well, my mom was a um, and is a historian of reproductive politics herself, and um, she was very insistent when me and my brother were growing up that we be social justice activists basically as our vocation for our lives and really instilled that in us and she was out there um supporting reproductive justice um herself and and you know had me reading Anne Frank's diary in fourth grade that's the example I always give <laughs> like as a small person I was socialized into being serious about history and social justice. I, and I had this family history too of my dad's parents um, having been uh, uh, members of the Communist Party in the US in the 30s. Um, and my my grandmother was a, a teacher union activist as was my step-grandfather. And so I, I had this union history in my family of, of people who had been part of the US left over the 20th century and had fought for union and worker rights. and um, you know, looking back at that, I, I was really fascinated by the 1930s. I, I wrote my college senior thesis um, on the laundry workers union organizing in the 1930s and 40s in New York City, an example of um, a majority uh, women and, and black workforce that uh, won amazing union victories that that rarely get talked about. They, they organized the industrial laundries that were really horribly um, you know, uh, underpaid and, and, and poor conditions. And then they were absorbed into a male dominated white union that tamped down the no democracy of those uh, women who were building their union. So it was kind of a story of the, the ups and downs of the US labor movement in the 20th century. And, and after I finished that thesis, I went to work for the very union that they became part of, even though it was so complicated. <laughs> right out of college, I worked for uh, Unite Here which was um it is a the union that represents uh, both hotel and restaurant and food service employees here which merged with the union called unite which was um the historic garment workers union and laundry workers union they merged in 2003 and like i came in in 2006 so it was it was mm. uh the two, I, I learned a lot about the kind of um downsides of two cultures clashing in a union. So I've sure. had a lot of experiences that could make one jaded about the labor movement, but I've also had a lot of experiences that um, show me the incredible power of collective action by working class people and, and all people as a student, you know, I was involved in fighting Columbia University's expansion into West Harlem because of the massive gentrification and displacement that would take place from that. 
yeah. I was able to learn from community activists. And so all of that, you know, my student activism experience, my family background, my studies in school all kind of led me to see that the labor movement was the place that could make structural change in this country to address address massive inequality and the lack of real democracy. You know, I have to, I just have to interrupt for a second, because I'm, as I'm listening to you, the more I'm, you know, hearing of your experience and sort of how, you know, all these things sort of merge to, you know, to where you are today, I'm fascinated by, as I contrast that to uh, how I was raised or the stories I heard in my family from like my grandfather or my father, that, you know, unions were the spawn of Satan, <laughs> that just how, I mean, really, they they really, my grandfather more than my father, but really that um, it, it just, uh, yeah, just not good. And it's not like it, I don't know that it came up often. I just remember that anytime conversation about unions did come up or some other company was organizing, I could hear them disparaging. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just, and it's interesting where I find myself now, like, you know, 108, not, not that I really understood what I was hearing, but I can remember hearing them disparage them. And so I never really understood. Like, I didn't think it was, I remember being confused, like having that cognitive dissonance, um, even even little, because I did the same thing. I read, you know, Dyer Van Frank when I was, you know, eight or whatever it was. I knew my favorite book at age 11 was I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, <laughs> you know, by Maya Angelou. So I, the the whole, I just knew there was something, but wait, they're just fighting for, you know, fill in the blank, but I was too little to really understand. So I just do what a lot of people do is I just, put it on a shelf um, and, and never really went anywhere. Did you have a sense of where that was coming from for your family members? Um, I think it was coming from, um, I would say my, from my grandfather, a very, um, which is kind of weird because he worked for the trucking. Um, you know, he, um, my sense is that it came from a place of, um, you know, you, you, it's going to take something away from me. Like if we do a union, then whatever, like from his perspective, some of it would be doing this is going to take away from me. Mm -hmm. And you want me to take care of these lazy people, but I work really hard, right. you know, like things. And not that he, I don't know that he ever said that out loud. I'm, I wouldn't surprise him if he did. He wasn't a very nice person, but it, it came from that, that rugged individualism. You need to work hard for yourself, you know, if you want to make it, you know, no handouts and that kind of thinking. Yeah, which is the American ideology, right? Yeah. And and, yeah. and it's become this crystallized <clears throat> uh, narrative, especially in the past 50 years. And he was probably working for this non-union company that was able to deregulate in the 70s um, uh, through federal, you know, decisions that the trucking company being regulated gave workers too much power basically so deregulating the trucking company and opening up more competition so-called uh really weakened the teamsters as the major union in trucking and i'm sure all those non-union uh you know competitors out there that were trying to keep the teamsters out at that in that period were saying you know, if the union comes in, here's all the stories about those corrupt teamsters. And here's all the stories about, you know, how the union contract gives us less flexibility, right? So, uh, yeah, and then that was really a, a, um, a 
coordinated effort by corporations and uh, the business lobby writ large to take over the narrative and the policy of our country, which they did very successfully. Um, and there's this memo that was published in the 60s um, by a future Supreme Court Justice, Lewis Powell, that I, that I always tell people about, because when I learned about it, I was like, oh, that, that really sums it up. It, it's a memo to the Chamber of Commerce, to all the businesses, the big uh, businesses and Chamber of Commerce saying, if we wanna take over policy and reform labor laws to be more in our interest and deregulate our industries, here's how we do it. We take over uh, universities, we build think tanks, we uh, influence the discourse in DC, and then they did all those things very successfully. Wow. It was a conspiracy. Yeah, it was, it was pretty, and, and pretty, the documents to prove it, yeah. Um, and you said American ideology, uh, I'd like to say American gaslighting. I mean, let's just call it what it is. Yes. Uh, there's, there's that. Also, also, uh, my takeaway from that exchange is that uh, I was clearly a late bloomer in regards to Anne Frank. Did not read Anne Frank in my 20s. I feel, I feel very underachieved. <laughs> This. I'm sure you were better prepared to absorb it. Than, uh, I'm may, may, maybe maybe, but growing up in Barbados, uh, not uh, you know the 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 horrors of the Holocaust, and we we had our own horrors to deal with, so we didn't we didn't focus a lot uh, on on that. But um, so so you know you you mentioned you know the intentionality of of um, restricting the power of unions and and all of that and 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 before we get into that and how you may have um, encountered that, it seems right now that uh, unions and the labor movement are having a resurgence. They're having a moment. We, we're seeing, um, uh, you know, stores and, and warehouses and factories all over the place, um, um, employees unionizing, Amazon, Starbucks, Trader Joe's. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, the, the, the unions associated with the railways um, just almost, you know, grounded everything to a halt. Um, is, it, is it really true that, that a resurgence is happening or is it just that um, the media is talking more about it? And if it is truly a resurgence that there's more and more of this happening, why do you think it's happening now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I, and and I'll just say here that I'm speaking as an individual, not on behalf of my employer CWA. But you okay. know, I will um, share insights from what I've learned at CWA. Um, CWA is an amazing democratic union that um, you know was built by telephone workers over the 20th century who had to contend with the monopoly power of AT and T, the Bell system, and they went on national strikes. They they went from poverty wages to middle class wages through uh, fighting and coming together nationally to to bring together a bunch of small independent telephone companies. Uh, I mean telephone unions as CWA in 1948, and um, and so I say all that to say that. Uh, there's been a lot of militancy in the history of the U.S. labor movement, and then you know, with this ideology we've been talking about and the clamping down um, through the legal system on workers' rights, uh, it really has dissipated. And my career has spanned this like precipitous decline, you know, of union uh, representation in the private sector. When I started, it was above. Uh, 10%, how it's at, uh, you know, 6% of the private sector is uh, workers are represented by unions. 
Um, and I don't think we've seen a, a total turnaround of those numbers yet on scale. Like, you know, in, in the 19, late 1930s and into the 40s, when the Wagner Act passed uh, the National Labor Relations Act and really created a legal structure for workers to uh, engage in collective bargaining and, and, and challenge uh, employer union busting, the, the upsurge at that time was, you know, in the hundreds of thousands a year, right? So, so we have to get to that point, but there are signs that we're, that we're moving in that direction. The, the upsurge of worker organizing in, in, these, uh, in the, the companies you mentioned and with CWA, we see an upsurge with Apple retail workers organizing that we're supporting and wireless tower climber workers who work in very dangerous jobs and have never organized over the, the existence of the wireless industry in the past 30 years. Um, you know, we are definitely, we, we have video game workers organizing like never before. Um, and, and, and those video game workers will tell you like at Activision Blizzard, um, this is a new day for them. You know, they've been talking about, you know, cr really bad uh, overtime and, and unfair hours and unfair pay for a lot of the workers and in job insecurity for years in the video game industry. It's a huge industry, right? It's more revenue than all the movies and music put together. And like, now unionization is like on the tip of everyone's tongue and, and video game workers have formally uh, won union elections and, and I've been bargaining some small groups. It hasn't, you know, taken over the industry, but you got to do that piece by piece, small groups to larger groups, right? And, and, and overcome employer resistance to show that it can be done. I think a lot of what's driving this upsurge um, is the pandemic. And like, because when I've talked to workers who are motivated in the past couple of years to stand up and organize who never had before, uh, a lot of them have said, um, yeah, the, the conditions around safety and health and respect for workers during the pandemic uh, just drove people to the edge and made them realize also, you know, they were not going to settle for this. They could not settle for this. And, and I think that's often what happens when conditions get a lot worse is people rise up, right? Um, and, and of course, that um, doesn't always result in victory, but uh, hopefully if workers are able to consolidate that upsurge into building powerful institutions, then it can have staying power. I think that's what the, the question will be. It doesn't have to be the, the old line unions like the one I work for. It could be a new independent union, right? With like Amazon labor union um, is an independent union. The workers formed it themselves. They didn't want to affiliate with an existing union because they wanted their own organization. But now they're trying to build that organization by organizing more warehouses and winning contracts with, um, with Amazon. And so uh, Amazon is, is fighting tooth and nail. Starbucks is fighting tooth and nail uh, at every single turn. And you know, we organized a group of uh, DISH uh, network satellite you know, uh, workers in, in Texas many years ago. And it took them 10 years to get a first wow. contract because wow. the company used every single trick in the legal book to delay, yeah. to block, and, and there's not enough good law. The law has been weakened so much that protects workers' rights that the workers could not use that legal system, the National Labor Relations Board that oversees union um, uh, elections and, and unfair labor practices, um, you know, and, and, and 10 years they did get a contract, but, but then DISH can say to every other group of workers that is thinking about organizing, 
oh, you don't want to do that. Look at what, you know, it took, it, they're still trying to get a contract after nine years. And even when they yeah. did, like, you know, I think DISH has very successfully tamped down other organizing efforts since then. So that's, and Verizon Wireless is the same. You know, we represent Verizon workers who, who um, do the wireline Fios um, connections across the Northeast, right, from, from Virginia up to um, up to the Massachusetts, New England area. And, um, and those workers have, again, fought and built their union for decades and decades because they were the original, you know, uh, Bell system telephone workers. So they've had a long time to build that union. Verizon Wireless, which only came into existence, you know, um, actually in 2000, thereabouts, um, when the company bought various wireless assets and launched that that brand, um, uh, it's newer and the workers haven't been bit, had those conditions to really fight and build a union. Every time a wireless worker in a Verizon retail store starts to even talk about the idea of calling CWA and forming a union, and we do represent a handful of retail Verizon stores in, in a few different places. Verizon um, flies in what they call the jump team from corporate headquarters um, to do captive audience meetings and one-on-ones with all these workers and tell them why they should not um, yeah. form a union. So it's like, uh, it's very intense. They don't even just hire the union busting consultants that you pay a thousand dollars an hour. They they have their own team, ready wow. to go. right? Yeah. So so and when they, when workers do organize, they often close those stores. So oh, the lease was up. Too bad. Wow. It's like wow. their their own their own built-in SWAT team. Yeah, having in. having images of 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 rappelling down from helicopters. Yeah, and, paratroopers. Uh, and, yeah, that that yeah. sort of deal. Tanks um, rolling in. And yeah. that, I mean, metaphorically, that is that is what's happening. Um, in yeah. a in a in a sense. Um, and I'm guessing doing things like that. Um, um, in you know, in terms of of trying to uh, stamp down the formations of 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 unions and in. The cases you just mentioned, you know, just closing the stores. I'm assuming all that's legal. Well, there's this very gray area set of, um, you know, ways you can get around what is illegal. What is illegal is threatening or carrying out a store closure because the worker is unionized. That is illegal. Mm. That's an unfair labor practice. But if the company can figure out some excuse to say, oh, the lease is expiring, right? Then mm-hmm. they can get a, get away with that. And, and that's, they what's, also- that's what Starbucks did near me here where I live is workers showed up, you know, one morning and it was closed. And then all the, the, inf- the communication from Starbucks was all these, you know, reasons why in terms of lease or affordability or sales are down or, you know, wow. um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, same thing happened when um, Lockheed Martin workers in Washington state tried to protest the fact that Lockheed moved all of their work to a non-union facility in South Carolina. And mm-hmm. uh, and it was clearly to avoid the cost of the union jobs that were way better paid and had good benefits, but they couldn't, they couldn't quite pin it on the company. And it was just, it was such a sad story. There's so many stories like that where union activists are fired, you know, in, in, in a lot of union campaigns and that's, it has a chilling effect. And then the company can just use another excuse. Of course, they have these punitive attendance policies, so many corporations these days, right? Where 
you get points every time you even take a sick day that you're entitled to. And if you get eight points, you're out, right? Like they use, they set up these systems that give them any kind of excuse. And and because the U.S. is a, is a at-will employment country, unlike almost any other country in the world where you have to have just cause for your firing and you have an employment contract in other countries, um, that does not exist in the U.S. You're at will. You can be fired for any reason at all, except a protected category reason, yeah. right? Except for discrimination. Well, that was the 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 railroad workers. They're like when they're when they come to work. Here's their shift. All the thing they're allowed to do is work. Like and the the you know getting penalized just to go to the bathroom. You know, or like um, it, when I was starting reading the details of what you know what the the workers you know the, the strike you know and all I'm like my God, isn't that considered like hostile work environment? It just, it's mind boggling to me. And I'm with you on the pandemic thing of people waking up. And, you know, while we're talking about labor and and unions, um, I think there's multiple ways that one of the things that's come out of the pandemic is people going, wait a minute, wait, what? Wait, I think I'm worth a little bit more. Or why am I doing this crappy job or taking this amount of pay or living here? Or, you know, I just I think there's some of that that, you know, rebellion and revolt, which is, you know, a hallmark of our rugged individualism. And I think the, you know, community revolt and community rebellion um, is also part of our our history, but but always, you know, um, worked hard to to get it out of the picture Um, yeah i think the pandemic has brought that up like a lot of people going hey wait wait a minute you know yeah because the whole like quiet quitting and like great resignation are ways that the media talks about the fact that workers have more labor market power right now because of the tight labor market and you know that is part of the dynamic you're describing right like people are not willing to put up with a minimum wage uh, server job anymore, um, which is really inspiring how workers are like, you know, no, um, saying no to those crappy jobs and and demanding more. And it is forcing wages up, right? For lower wage workers, there is an increase, um, but it's not anywhere near enough of an increase to make right. up for the decades of stagnation yeah. that lower wage workers have seen, which have led to the massive you know, income inequality, wealth inequality in yes. this country, but but it's also like because hedge fund executives have the carried interest, uh, you know, tax loophole, right, where they get to do all these massive bets on the stock market and on um, investments that are extremely risky um, and and create instability in the economy. But then they get to, um, on their earnings, you know, only pay the lower capital gains tax rather than the full uh, income tax amount, and it and it costs, you know, our our public treasury billions of dollars, and it and it allow and it creates billionaires, it mints billionaires, and and having more billionaires is a horrible thing. We need to abolish yeah. billionaires. You know, we need a wealth tax, and so it, you know, in terms of the challenges like labor faces, it's like. It is the political, you know, environment that we live in is ultimately that that um, that horrible um, kind of deadening feeling of like the rich people own this country and own our politics. And well, and, and it's it's also it's um, 
for I'm going to guess for a lot of people, uh, I don't know if it's a lot, but I, I know people that, well, wait a minute, if you're saying no billionaires, there should never be, you know, when you're talking about accumulating wealth, wait a minute, what about the American dream? Now you're talking about destroying the American dream. And now, you know, outcome the clause. You mean, kinda, you, know, you, mean, the, you the, mean putting out the American gaslight? Um, hey, I'm they are- just, Yes. They are they are benevolent billionaires. I know yes. I know of two, Mackenzie <laughs> Scott, uh, you know Jeff Bezos's former uh, former wife who who basically has been giving away her money left, right, and center, and the dude who just uh, Patagonia, right, Patagonia, the, yep. dude who just like signed over his company uh, for for climate change efforts. So so there's two two. Well, the good ones are no longer billionaires. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I just, I can, I can already hear people, you know, and, and I, I'm not saying me, but it's just, it's this, I can, I guess I can see why it takes so, yeah. how it has taken so long because ultimately there's this unconscious, you know, communication yeah. that what you're trying to do is destroy the American. There's, people. there's, there's actually, so, so, so black America is actually, Interestingly, now coming for people like Jay Z and other folk like that, uh, a lot of these uh, media and entertainment moguls who are billionaires, and right. saying, "Wait, you know, the 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 yeah, good good for you guys doing doing your hustle and becoming billionaires." But if you're billionaires, that means that there's some good that's not being done for our community, that that we are also being exploited and you can't consider yourself an activist and a capitalist and benefit from both uh you can't you, you can't do it that way so so what's so that leads me to my next question uh uh for you now is um is is the problem inherently and it's sort of a rhetorical question <laughs> is the problem inherently capitalism or is the problem inherently um, those who seek to exploit what capitalism um, can afford. And, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, it's capitalism is one of, um, I guess, a handful of economic systems. However, as you were alluding to, the, the super ultra rich know how to exploit the system to get more gain. And that that gap between, for example, what what the what the lowest worker on the totem pole and the CEO earns has just continued growing and growing over over the decades. So some people might argue, hey, the problem isn't capitalism. The problem is the people uh, in, involved. Um, is it is it an either or is it a both and? Yeah, I think it's a, a both and the, the, the you know, racial capitalism as it exists today that's, you know, built on a history of imperialism and colonialism and 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 has at its root the feudal system of freaking lords controlling serfs you know mm -hmm. um uh is a system rotten to its core but it also um has has lots of complexity and contradiction internal to it where it's been adapted to social democracy in in other countries besides this one that are rich um you know and 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 some that are less rich have have developed a more social democratic version of capitalism. And so you can see how socialism where, you know, everyone owns the resources together and makes democratic decisions about how to use resources, um, democratic socialism um, 
is kind of, it can be in some ways married with capitalism, or, you know, there could be a transition from a totally market economy to a more socialist democratic economy. So there's ways in which you can, um, you know, adapt a market economy to be more equal and more democratic, and it could, you know, move towards a more socialist system. But capitalism uh, is inherently uh, built to, you know, give private property and wealth greater greater value than human life that is how capitalism works and and because there's not a um a set of values that governs the economy uh, out you know that, that govern markets uh over just pure profit pursuit um that the, there is not a higher order than just you know the the drive for those profits and that higher order is social democracies is uh, democratic socialism, as Bernie Sanders talks about, right? Like he's yeah. our most high-profile pro democratic socialist around. I got to tell you, anytime my mother, my mother hears the word socialist, socialism, she you can you can actually see her little brain imploding, and my sister and I have to keep unpacking it for her because she's thinking socialism, you know, fifty years ago, sixty-eight, whatever. She's uh, it. That's. Whew. So on, on, I, I want to um, ask, since you know, talking about socialists, and the last thing that that Ogan said when he was, you know, talking about you and introducing you was being an active member of Metro DC Democratic Socialist of America Defund MPD. And my my when I read that, I I had to pause and kind of and and tease that apart. So I'm wondering, this was just a curiosity of mine of what response do you get? at times when you tell people that and and what do they hear and what do they think it is and what is it yeah absolutely it's, it's the working group um for defund mpd within the metro dc dsa chapter the democratic socialists of america which is the largest socialist organization in the u.s um and growing by leaps and bounds since 2016 especially um but um the, our and what is what is mpd let's so the yeah, uh, totally. So our working group um, is focused on, you know, defunding the police. It's an abolitionist version, uh, a vision that, you know, we uh, believe that the, the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department should be, um, you know, really abolished. But but the path to get there is about radically reducing the amount of resources that go to policing and investing those resources in the root causes of violence to uh, remake our communities so that everyone has what they need to thrive rather than uh, you know enabling the ongoing poverty and displacement of black communities in the city and you know the, the violence that goes with that and so investing in housing investing in social services investing in education is such a better, use of our public resources than you know more than half a billion dollars to the police department which is the current budget um and and that budget has increased unfortunately while this campaign has been going on though there was one year in in, in last year the budget went down somewhat 
because of attrition, because of cops leaving, because there is a growing awareness among rank and file police officers that they're being put in a position to be part of this basically rotten system and that there's also a huge bad rap now for that uh, increasingly, right? So it's harder to recruit cops. So, um, you know, people are, are, are seeing that and are, are there's certainly backlash, but I will say that, um, you know, as I said, socialism ha is having a comeback. Tons of young people are, are joining DSA and other, other activist groups. Um, and I am the intake person for our working group. So I do onboarding with all the new people that wanna get involved. And, I, and, I, and there's all these young people that are like, yeah, I am totally on this train. I totally understand the systemic issues at play here and how defunding and abolition is not about, you know, just uh, tomorrow turning off the lights and, and just, you know, letting violence happen and no one can call anyone. It's not that at all. It's about rethinking what is public safety and how do we have safe communities at proactively rather than reactively. And so uh, just as an example of how people react when I say, you know, Metro DC, Democratic Socialists of America, we're part of the defund MPD coalition, which I should be clear, we're not defund MPD. We are part of the defund MPD coalition here in DC, which is led by uh, black led organizations and individuals and has about 30 organizations that are part of it. Um, so we, uh, we were out canvassing a couple weekends ago to advertise a free brake light and taillight fixing clinic that we organized and some other DSA chapters had done this in other cities. And the idea is a mutual aid activity. We're fixing people's brake lights and taillights for free. I learned how to do it. It's a lot easier than I thought. And, um, and uh, you know, then they won't get pulled over for a broken taillight, which you get a $75 ticket and could get involved in the criminal legal system, right? Like for being poor, for not having- If, even... if, if you're lucky on the extreme end, you get shot. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, you have more interactions with the police, which for Black people are particularly dangerous. And the the uh, in DC, the traffic, uh, the equipment related pullovers of drivers, where something like a brake light, uh, those uh, were uh, seventy seven percent pulling over Black people, even though Black people are now less than a little less than half of, of the population in DC, and then also. Uh, I don't know exactly how many pullovers there were, but it in in 2021, but um, it, it resulted in 200 arrests, right? So yes. these are stats that the MPD was forced to release. So um, and so that that means that you're pulled over for an equipment issue, and somehow that ends up in arrest. You know that should not happen. Yeah. And instead, a DDOT, a, a, a transit department employee, should come along and help you change your light. Come on guys, like let's let's help each other out here, right? Like that would be the public service that we need when people, you know, don't have resources and haven't gotten around or haven't even noticed that their brake light is is out because I learned, you know, you really often don't know that. Right. right. And, yeah, and so um there's also a bill that's going to be introduced um to uh, prohibit cops in DC from pulling people over for these minor equipment infractions. So that's our next step. And this event was a way to educate people about that bill, get them to call their council member to co-sponsor that bill. And these, these were the best conversations on doors that I have ever had about socialism. Cause you're like giving something for free, right? And everyone kind of agrees, this is ridiculous that people get pulled over and, and fined for having a broken and taillight and 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 everyone gets it and um i mean most people 
we ran into a, 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 an off-duty cop and he did not get it. But <laughs> Shocker. Uh, but every other canvassing conversation I had that yeah. day was so positive. And people, when, when I was like, here's the thing we're doing. And I'm from Democratic Socialists of America. Um, and we're part of the Deep Fund Coalition. People were just like, cool, this is cool. You know, and right. we had like some good conversations. So, so I can see how that's something that like affects uh, a person's um, everyday lived experience and people could be engaged by that. How do we get people involved and um, um, and get them to care about things like unions and the labor movement if it may not affect their daily life? Say that, you know, you got, an, you got a nice job that has nice benefits and and you're you're okay or or you know, you work, you work for yourself like us, we're, we're, we're self-employed and, you know, we, we are, we are management and HR and everything all together. Um, so, 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 so how do you get, how do you get people to, to care? How do you get them involved? Why should they be involved in making sure unions and the labor movement succeeds and, and, you know, how can they help out? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so many ways, but I think it's, it's, uh, it is one of those, if you're not, um, outrage, you're not reading the news or, or talking to your neighbors because like your community, even if you're not a hourly employee, your, your community and your family and your neighbor, you know, they are, and, and it's impacting your community. Right. And, and so paying attention to politics at every level from your neighbors, you know, workplace struggles to, um, your city council races, I think, especially local politics is like, really matters to our lives and is where people can get more involved you know it's easier to make a difference and feel like you've really made an impact in your local community rather than like calling your congressperson I mean that's that can be good too being part of a national movement around issues you care about but it's so important to, to plug in locally by you know anything from um you know, uh, joining your local chapter of Democratic Socialists of America they're all over the country um uh to uh, paying attention to to local electoral politics and and volunteering that way, um, I think that uh, there's also a moment right now where uh, you know, of course, we're coming up to an election, so there's plenty of things you can do in that regard. But there's also a, a much more empowered uh, population that's realizing that mutual aid can go hand in hand with political mobilization in a way that's not just about electoral politics, that's a build, about building a base of power and, and, and confronting corporate power in the workplace. But so an example is like the DC abortion uh, fund. I was at a fundraiser for them last night and they have volunteer opportunities. You can be a volunteer caseworker where you just help people who need you know, support to cross state lines to get an abortion. You get them the money they need, you take down their details. They need data volunteers to just help manage their databases. They need, you know, so there's like very logistical tasks that a lot of organizations right now, DC is seeing an influx of migrants sent here by Republican states, right? Right. So like there's a lot of volunteer work with Sanctuary DC yeah. to help, you know, support those folks who are being, you know, uh, used as political pawns. So um, there's so many ways to, I think, locally engage to provide mutual aid, but in a way that that's connects to a larger political vision of, of people having power over their, their lives and our collective resources and engaging in collective action 
in our workplaces and beyond to change the balance of power because we can't just do it through elections. Now, now one of the things that uh, that you you coached me on, which I'd like you to to speak a little bit about, that maybe not as helpful is I decided to you know boycott and not shop at Amazon anymore. And one of the things you you you've said to me is that's not nearly as uh, impactful or making a difference. And I know other people who do this as well. Talk a little bit about, about that. Um, why, why that's, why that's not nearly as, uh, you know, as impactful as I, I imagined it to be. Yeah. I mean, it's not to say that consumer boycotts are never impactful, mm-hmm. but they have to be well organized and, and also they have to be called for by, by the impacted parties you're trying to help, you know, you're trying mm-hmm. to be in solidarity with, um, So if workers have not called for a consumer boycott, if you're trying to do something to help the workers and they haven't actually called for a boycott themselves, Mm -hmm. then they're not asking for that as a strategic action, you know, Um, and, and it's so hard for enough consumers to come together to make an impact on a company's bottom line that individuals doing that by themselves, it's not going to you know, uh, be a, a big enough or a visible enough yeah. impact on a huge company's bottom line, right? So the, the grape boycott by the farm workers in the 60s, um, the table grape uh, boycott was successful because it was like really well organized and people were outside, you know, supermarkets across the country and, and don't buy gallo grapes, right? That That's the kind of boycott that can work. Um, just make your own consumer choices by yourself without, you know, uh, a call for it or an organized effort. It doesn't, it doesn't have that power. All right. Okay. So that's, that's, that's good to know. know. Yeah. And it reminds me of the, often people use the, you know, that, that metaphor, the little, the little story about, um, you know, throwing that one starfish back in the ocean and it made a difference to that starfish you know, um, throwing it back in the ocean, you know, off the beach, that I think um, sometimes is used, uh, especially in coming back to what Ogan said when we opened, that that often our focus is on spiritual communities and spiritual seekers, like using that almost as a, it, it could be, you know, like a spiritual bypass. Well, I'm doing my part for the greater whole and, but not realizing everything you just said. And not um, realizing that individual consumer choices is not the same as political action. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, so um, the last thing we want to do before we wrap up is uh, when we've interviewed folks, um, we like to wrap up with something we call the sample seven. These are seven random uh, questions that say absolutely nothing about who you are, but tell us everything about you all at once. Um, <laughs> we did not prep you for these intentionally. Don't overthink. This is just a snapshot of where you are today. I'm going to give you some choices. And it's fun. And you pick the one that resonates with you uh, right now in this moment. So are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. Uh, chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. Star Wars or Star Trek? Oof. That's hard, but I'll say um, Star Trek. They, listen, they're having a moment right now. Can I just say their shows are on point? Anyways, uh, city or country? City. Beer, wine, or te- tequila? Beer and tequila, but it's fine, beer. <laughs> like together, tequila shot in a, in a, in a, in a bomber. Uh, Mexican, Chinese, or Indian food? Um, Mexican. She says reluctantly. She says reluctantly, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we need another choice on the end of that. Maybe, maybe question gets um, ebook, audiobook, or real book? Ooh, all of the above, but um right now particularly um uh e- ebook, I-, I will admit, even though I'm not proud. 
Yeah. <laughs> why, why not? I love me some ebooks. Uh, um, but I know what you mean. Um, and, and finally, Netflix or chill? Uh, I will say Netflix. Yeah, we're, we're all, we're all stuck with Netflix. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, My, I love that question when we ask someone and they don't know. And they're like, uh, what? You know, that's my favorite one. <laughs> there you go. Uh, now, thank you so much um, for giving us giving us your time. But more importantly, thank you for the work that you do um, to make this world actually um, a, a place that is uh, providing more justice um, and, and, and liberation for workers, not just workers, but essentially all of us, even if we don't think we are uh, directly connected or related to it. So uh, so I sit here in awe of the work that you do. Um, um, one of the things you said earlier is maybe you do too much. So, so please remember to take care of yourself along the way. Rest. Uh, Pause, rest. You do the work. Yeah, well, it's wonderful to be with you both. Thank you so much for the work you do. And uh, I'm I'm looking forward to listening to the whole back catalog. (laughs) Thank you. There there you go. We got it. We got it. We got a new listener. Um, All right, folks, that's it um, for for today. And um, I am pretty sure we're going to be back on our regular schedule uh, next week. So tune in uh, Facebook uh, Live uh, Tuesdays. 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern time. And of course, uh, please spread the word of this podcast to all your all your friends. Tell them to take a listen again on all the all the podcast platforms. Or if you happen to have that one friend who does not know what a podcast is, um, they can listen on their computers, on their smartphones, go to the website um, with love and justice for all dot podbean. So until next time, let's just keep getting our holy on and create a world of love, justice, and liberation for all. Peace.